Christ is risen. I must have gotten taller since the last service. Took some vitamins. Well, it is good to be with you on this holiday weekend. It is apparent to me who has a lake house and who does not, based on who is here today. So we're glad that you are here worshiping with us. I need to tell you a little bit about my night last night. So some of the sanctuary staff got invited to a Tulsa Drillers baseball game. And if you don't know, the Tulsa Drillers are the local minor league baseball team. And that is effectively where my knowledge of minor league baseball ends. But my wife and I, we get our daughter uh, ready to go. And the carrot on the stick, so to speak, to get her to go to this game is that there are going to be fireworks. And fireworks are the big ta-da for her that entice her to come to the game. So we get there, we find our seats, we eat some hot dogs, uh, we spend some time with the sanctuary staff hanging out. And, you know, all the while we are kind of in our seats, hanging out, talking, the game is just kind of happening over there. Like, you know, we see some guys hit and sometimes we don't. It's just kind of whatever. We're, we're just there. Um, so I noticed pretty early we're down like three to zero, and that kind of sets the tone for the rest of the game for me. Like I'm just like whatever. This is we're just here hanging out, having a good time. So we end up staying for most of the game, and it's getting late. And my daughter, she's three, so she definitely has a bedtime, and we are way past bedtime. So anytime we're like, you know, maybe we should get out of here, maybe we should try to beat the traffic, anything like that, she's like, but the fireworks. Right? So we stayed for the whole game because of the fireworks. But something kind of magical happened. At the bottom of the eighth inning, we're down five to three. And somebody from the drillers hits a two run home run. It's five to five. It's a tie baseball game. So all of a sudden, there's like a little bit of buzz, a little energy in this stadium. Like, yeah, we're doing something here. So, top of the ninth. The other team is up, and it's a pretty quick three and out. So now we're in the bottom of the ninth. Tie ball game. Bases are loaded. There's one out. And this guy gets up and hits the most ordinary single you've ever seen. But he brings in the winning run. And so we're kind of expecting, like, yeah, we did it. But I've got Nora on my shoulders. We're screaming. We're high-fiving strangers. Like, we are so pumped that we just won. And about a second later, it's not just like a normal win. The team comes running out from the dugout with champagne. And they're spraying it all over each other and pouring it over each other's heads. And they've got, like, the swim goggles on, the whole bit. They won the Texas League Championship last night, and we had no idea. (laughs) So we finally talked Nora into leaving. Like, I'm realizing there's going to be a presentation, there's going to be awards, there are going to be speeches. Like, fireworks are a long way off from right now. So we get her. We're like, Nora, we have to go. She's like, well, can we walk slowly? And I'm like, yes, we can walk slowly. She's like, if we see or hear the fireworks happening, can we stop? And watch from wherever we are. I say, yes, we can stop and watch from wherever we are. So we get to the car, slowly buckling her in. 
And we take off, we get onto the highway, we're on 75 South on the east side of downtown. And I start to see in my rearview mirror these flashes. So I pull the car over, throw the hazards on, it's very safe. And I pull her out of her car seat. I don't know if I should admit that on camera. We pull her out of her car seat, roll the windows down, and she has this like amazing view of the fireworks. But we didn't get home till about 11.45, which means she was in bed by like 12.30. And I am exhausted. But we're going to do this thing. (laughs) I added this story to my notes last night, and I'm realizing it was like three pages worth of like this baseball game. (laughs) Oh, what a night. So I think for anybody who is tasked with standing in front of a crowd and talking about something, there's this inevitable search for a kind of silver bullet, um, this quip or this bit of wisdom or knowledge that if I can just get it out of my head and I can place it in someone else's head, like we're going to fix everything pretty quickly. But the more I sat with these texts, the more I tried to pull them apart and searching for this sort of silver bullet idea, the more I'm realizing this is just simply, this is simply not how this works. There is no quip. There is no bit of knowledge. There's nothing that I can take out of my head or even take out of these texts and just drop them on you, and suddenly we fix all the problems. The way this works is by invitation. It's an invitation to a certain way of living, It's an invitation to a certain kind of being in the world that we have to let sink into our bones. We have to let sink deep into the fabric of who we are. And if we're lucky, this invitation will begin to shape us and form us into faithful followers of Jesus. For Abraham, this invitation was about stepping out. We've talked about this before, that Abraham and then their worldview He had a cyclical view of history, that everything that has happened is happening and will happen again. And you did not leave your tribe. But Abraham was actually called to step out of his tribe, to start a new people, a new nation, a nation that blesses all other nations. And this is not something that happened. This was a new idea for human history, and it was a result of him accepting this invitation. For Moses... The invitation was actually about stepping back in. It was about rejoining his people and liberating his oppressed kinfolk from the oppression of the empire. But these invitations, they're never about believing all the right things. They're never about aligning with all the right political parties, but about a new way of living that draws us deeper into community with God and community with one another. So the text this morning is not just about Moses' experience with a natural phenomena of a bush on fire. Bushes catch on fire in the desert all the time. It wasn't even about the call for Moses to become a liberator. The text is about the necessity of wilderness. The text is about how the divine breath of God fills everything with life and with holiness. It's about our false self being stripped away under the judgment of God. And it's about the power of finding community by loving others rightly, but only after we've experienced being rightly loved by God. 
So there are four sorts of movements that I want to walk us through this morning that I believe the text invites us to participate in. And those movements are wilderness, breath, the self, and love. So the first movement is wilderness. Wilderness is an interesting thing. In antiquity, wilderness is deeply symbolic. It's symbolic for these places that are uncorrupted by politics, these places that are unscathed by militarization, untethered to empire or nationalism. And while wilderness is often a harsh, chaotic, and mostly lifeless place, it's also a place flush with space and room and silence for God to speak. There seems to be something about the wilderness that changes us, that unburdens us of the systems and the structures that tempt us to be less human. For Moses, this stripping away was a result of fasting from the pleasures and privileges of Egypt, the wandering through the wilderness that prepared him to encounter the holy. In a way, this was the first conversion of Moses. It was a conversion away from his Egyptian self that strips him of everything he's known and thrusts him out into the wilderness. You know, for most of us, we will never experience a physical wilderness. We live in the 21st century, a place with air conditioning. Why would we ever venture to the wilderness? So for us, wilderness is often masked as doubt. Those lonely places, the places where we feel like no one else has ventured, the places that you find yourself when you feel like your faith tradition or your beliefs, your faith has failed you, and there's no one else to help you. What do you do? Where do you go? Our wilderness often looks like the disappointment and heartbreak that we experience, even long after we think we've moved past it. But it's here. It's coming through the wilderness. It's losing everything that Moses thought he knew. It's here that he finds the burning bush, the glory of God made present and known to him. So what if this is the work and the purpose of wilderness? What if the reason the wilderness is necessary is because in reality, every bush is burning with the glory of God? But Moses was only allowed to see the one, and it's after he has wandered through the wilderness that he comes to the realization that this bush is on fire? What if it's only after we are stripped away of privilege the way that Moses was stripped away of the pleasures and the privilege that he had known in Egypt? See, I find it interesting that the Lord says to Moses, take off your sandals because the place and the ground on which you are standing is holy. He doesn't say, don't come any closer because this circle here is holy, the place that you are about to step into. He says, the place that you already are is holy because this is how God works, isn't it? That the divine breath, this breath that brings everything into creation is all around us. Everything is holy. What changes is our attention. If holiness, if otherness is the essence of who and what God is, 
Scripture tells us that the angels are declaring in heaven, not love, 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 or mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 but holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And holiness is complete otherness. So if this is who and what God is, then we need new eyes to see not just the bush in front of us burning with the glory of God, but that all bushes, that all people, all things are being consumed in the fire of who God is and the redeeming work that God is doing in the world. Rene Rilke, a 19th century Bohemian Austrian poet, once penned, truly it is glorious, our being here. Or in another translation, to be here is glorious. And what I love about this statement is that it has nothing to do with us, but it has everything to do with presence and attention. To be here is glorious. Because Moses was simply doing his job. He's tending the flock of his his father-in-law. And we have to imagine that the ground he's standing on is ground that he has stood on before. The desert that he has walked through is a desert that he's walked through before, but what changes for Moses is his attention, his ability to slow down, to recognize the work God is doing in the world, even if it's in the most common of places, even if it's in the most mundane of places, in the most ordinary of places, which raises the question, are we standing on holy ground all the time? Passing by burning bushes left and right but we're too busy or too selfish or too unaware to recognize that everything is holy. Because this is exactly how God works. To take the common and make it divine. To take a meal and make it a thanksgiving. To take bread and make it the body. To take a cup and make it the blood to take Tulsa Drillers baseball tickets and make them championship Tulsa Drillers baseball tickets. This is how God transforms the world. But more often than not, I think that we go about our days the way cows stare at cars. I'm going to stand by that statement. So I'm from Indiana, and we drive past cows all the time. We live in Oklahoma, and we drive past cows all the time. And if you're paying attention the next time you're driving past a bunch of cows, inevitably, as your car passes, you'll see a, car, or a cow rather, stop what it's doing, look up, it'll see you, it'll watch you, and go right back to what it's doing. The cow is not thinking I wonder where they're going. wonder where they came from. I wonder what they're struggling with today. I wonder what God is speaking to that person in that car. No, like there's nothing there, right? It's a cow. But this is how we live our lives. Think about the person that you order coffee from. Think about the person that walks you to your table in a restaurant. Think about the hundreds of people that you pass by in your car every single day. 
we never consider the work of the divine in their lives, but God is working in their life. He is speaking to the silence of their souls just the exact same way he was speaking to Moses in the wilderness. If you look at the text, it says the years go, go by from the time that Moses leaves Egypt to the time that he's in the wilderness and experiences the burning bush. This is where most of us find ourselves. We know we don't belong over there, but we have no idea where God is calling us to go and what changes is our attention. The wilderness has a way of drawing us in, of stripping us bare of anything and everything that might hinder us from encountering the holy, the holy other. And how is Moses greeted by the divine? It's by breath. This is our second movement this morning, breath. In this great exchange between Moses and the burning bush comes what is known as the divine name revealed. If any of you actually have your Bibles with you this morning, it probably has that section titled, The Divine Name Revealed, in which God says to Moses, I am who I am, or in Hebrew, Yahweh. In Hebrew, this name is essentially four, four letters, and we would say Y-H-V-H. That's how we pronounce our letters. But in Hebrew, the letters are Yad, Heh, Vav, Heh. So in many traditions, this name isn't even pronounced because it's considered so sacred, so mysterious, so holy. They believe that these letters, which are essentially vowels, were these kinds of breathing sounds that ultimately name ultimately give this name to the sound of our own breath. Yad. Vav. And this is the paradox of life that we all find ourselves in. That we as human beings are so fragile, we're so vulnerable, we come from the dust, but we are breathed into by the creator of the universe. And this breath inflates every single living thing. We find in Genesis 2, 7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living thing. So can we go to school for just a second? Because in the scriptures, the word breath is the same word that is used for the word spirit. In the Hebrew language, it's the word ruah. So one scripture says that when God takes away the ruah, the breath of all living creatures, then they die and they return to dust. This is Ecclesiastes. All are from dust and they return to dust. But when God sends the ruah, the spirit, they are created. When you take in the breath of God, when you breathe, what happens is you become aware of all the things that you need to leave behind, everything that you need to let go of. This was the kind of encounter that Moses has with God, with Yahweh, with the divine breath, becoming keenly aware of everything he needed to let go of, letting go of his insecurities, letting go of his alien status, his privilege to take up all that God had called him to, kinship, 
liberation, justice. And this is the judgment of God. These burning bush experiences, these moments of encountering the holy other, they are never an end in themselves, but a way of opening us up to our calling. In Exodus 3, we read, Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God says, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Again, Moses' experience at the burning bush was not an end in itself, but a way of opening him up to his calling back to his people, back to God's people, the people of Israel, the people that Moses had belonged to all along. And our experiences with God are no different. Our encounters always lead us out and away from this place. This is the function and the work of deacons in the church, that we come here, we collect ourselves, we gather our faith, and we have these encounters with God as a corporate body. And the deacons say, this is not where it ends. The deacons open the doors and they escort us out back into the world to say the experience and the word and the breath that you have received in this place. We can't let it sit here. It's calling us back out to the world. Moses' experience with the burning bush, he could have left it right there. He has the divine name revealed. He knows exactly who God is, but that's not where it stops. And when God tells him to go, he says, who am I? And God says, I will be with you. Oftentimes the judgments that we place on ourselves are the most false judgments. And God's response to us is, I will be with you. I'm sending you back to your people because you belong to me. This is the judgment of God. It doesn't matter who anyone else says you are. God declares over you, I have called you. I will be with you. And the judgment I place on you is that you are mine. You are a beloved son and a beloved daughter. You are called to liberate the oppressed from the harsh burden of inferiority. And you are called to liberate the oppressors from the destructive illusion of superiority. It was this kind of judgment that draws Moses back to community. Which leads to our third movement this morning, the self. As I mentioned, there are two conversions from Moses. The first was a conversion away from his Egyptian self. And the second was a conversion back toward his Israelite self, which forces him back toward Egypt and his enslaved people. So in other words, Moses' conversion redefined the function of privilege in his life. Because there are two kinds of privilege. The first kind of privilege is privilege that is rooted in entitlement. It's the privilege that says, I deserve, I am owed, I should be given this. And this is always the privilege of the empire. The second kind of privilege is privilege that comes from gratitude a privilege that comes from responding to a gift that you've been given. For Moses, the gift that he was given was the word of liberation. It was this word of let my people go. 
And this word had been shut up in Moses' bones. And the gift that he was given was to be sent back to his people to proclaim those words. So there's a way in which we are given a gift. And if we don't speak the words, if we don't accept the privilege of being the message bearer, that it's actually doing an injustice to the world. That it's actually a wrong that we do to the world. So this gift, this word for Moses, it took the wilderness for him to find it. And God's judgment then always moves us from our false self to our true self. And our true self is always found and it's always rooted in community. The challenge for us is that what we might have to lose is our sense of community before we can find it again. We have to abandon what we think we know about community in order to allow God to draw us in to true community. Because we find comfort in a community that affirms our conscience. We find comfort in a community that affirms our biases and our notions about who God is and how he works. We find comfort in a community that affirms and defends our ideas about who is in and who is out, who's invited to this table and who's not. We find comfort in a community that is more concerned about releasing a statement about those people rather than demonstrating Christ's outrageous and relentless love for those people. So unfortunately for us, these kinds of communities, these communities of comfort, these sorts of house of cards, they can never stand up to the divine breath. The community that God calls us to is never about comfort. It's always about belonging. Every time we try to structure the narrative as us versus them, God always flips the script to say it is us for them. We see this play out again and again in the Gospels. Every time the religious leaders try to paint Jesus into a corner or they try to trick him into affirming their own legalism, it always ends up with them dropping their stones. Woman, where are your accusers? Woman, where are your accusers? Our true self will never be realized so long as we are the ones holding the stones. The judgment that we encounter in the presence of God is always love. And the only judgment that we can rightly place on others is love. Because in the face of judgment, we experience love rather than condemnation. We experience grace rather than accusation. We experience a calling rather than a disqualification. So what kind of love are we called to bestow on others? Movement four, love. So on Thursday night, my daughter Nora falls out of bed. And I'm a pretty sappy and sentimental person, and so this is never a quick experience for me. It's not just like a shooer back to bed, like stop crying, you're fine. Um, It's walking her back to bed, tucking her in, kissing her on the forehead, sitting down in her chair next to her bed, watching her sleep. This is what we do as parents, right? Like, I'm not alone in this. There's something about watching your kids sleep that's like, 
otherworldly, right? So I'm sitting there, and <laughs> as you do, I'm thinking about all of the heartache and all the disappointment and all the pain that she's going to experience in her life. And as a parent, I think there is a way in which that's an unfaithful hope for our kids' lives. I think we should protect our children from unnecessary suffering. But to say I want to protect them from all suffering, from all hurt, from all disappointment, it's actually an unfaithful hope for their lives. So I think the kind of hope that I do have for her, the kind of love that we are supposed to offer the world, are one and the same. And I think there are three ways that we can love. Two of them are unfaithful. There is a way to love people simply for their beauty and their goodness and their charisma and their talent. If this person was going to go into every beauty contest, they would win every beauty contest. They are the winners of competitions and trophies and everything good. And when you love people for those qualities, it places them on a pedestal that's very unrealistic. It's, a, it's an ideal that they can never actually live up to. So it's a way of actually doing violence with our love. There's a second kind of love where we acknowledge all the brokenness, all the ugly, all the failures of someone, and simply say, it's okay. I love you for all those things, and this is just how life is. But that's an unfaithful way of loving someone because it doesn't offer any sort of hope for the world. So the third way that I think we are called and invited to love people is to say, there is goodness in you. There is hope and joy in you, but there's also brokenness in you. And that brokenness and those failures, those cracks of our souls, they're there for a reason. They're there so that we can actually be poured out for the world. This is the kind of hope and the kind of love that we are called to offer the world. Philosopher Alan Badu, he talks about this instinct to protect ourselves from the fall of falling in love. The instinct that I have to protect my daughter from the suffering that she's going to experience in love. And he says that this instinct to protect ourselves from the fall of falling in love, by insulating ourselves from the suffering of love, we actually insulate ourselves from love itself. That there is a suffering element to love that we cannot sidestep, we cannot avoid. This kind of community, this kind of love that is grounded, has to be willing to embrace the suffering of love that's required in order to weep with those who weep. This kind of love and this kind of community, it renders the world sublime. And this kind of love and this kind of being in the world is not something that you can do you can conjure up on your own. It's something that you can only give yourself to. John Caputo, another philosopher, he states, let's not say God and love exist. Let's not say that. Let's say God and love insist. Let's say, or not say rather, that God and love are sublime. Let's say they render the world sublime. 
Let's not say that God and love are meaningful. Let's say God and love bring meaning into the world. Because again, this is not about having all the right beliefs. This is about giving yourself to something, accepting an invitation, throwing yourself into love and into community. This is what giving ourselves over to love and God's work in the world looks like. I'll leave you with this. In Romans 12, the Apostle Paul describes a kind of love that is possible only after we've encountered the spirit in the wilderness and our false self has been transformed. We need to let the spirit find us in the wilderness. If we can hope to be a people capable of this kind of genuine love that Paul calls us to participate in, we need to let the spirit find us. So I want to read this to you, read this over you. And if you would, I invite you to close your eyes, to place your feet flat on the floor, And let these words wash over you and let them sink into your bones because this is the kind of love we are called to participate in. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in suffering, persevere in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, extend hospitality to strangers, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If your enemies are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen.